Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for today. Thanks very much for joining us on the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Um, we are here to bring you the best in healthcare policy chat radio together with my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz. Uh, we keep you on the straight and narrow towards free market solutions uh, that hopefully lead us to a better healthcare system. So uh, at the Doctor's Lounge, we're excited. We're kind of excited and a little depressed all at the same time. We'll go over why we're excited first because that's really the big news is tomorrow, um, technically Friday morning, but tomorrow evening, Thursday evening, starts our big meeting of the year, our direct primary care conference, our our biggest conference of the year uh, where we will be continuing our efforts to educate physicians and other interested individuals on uh, how to implement and maintain and flourish in a direct primary care practice. We have a wonderful panel of speakers. We have an awesome keynote, uh, and we are very excited to get this meeting going uh, within 24 hours from now. So we hope to see you there. Uh, We are going to have a wonderful time and do a lot of good education. We'll be recording uh, some Doctors Lounge radio shows there with some of the guests. Uh, Promises to be a great event, even better than last year's event, which was really uh, pretty awesome indeed. So that's the reason we're excited. A good thing. Uh, but we're also a little depressed because uh, if you look beyond what we're doing and you look at sort of the, the policy picture at large, uh, you know, we're, what, nine months into a Trump administration. And I, I hate to say it can't get any worse. Every time you say that, you jinx yourself, of course. But, boy, it's, uh, it, it's looking rather bleak inside the Beltway. Uh, we have health care reform that is basically dead on arrival, whether – Trump tries to cut a deal with just the Republicans, pass it the way Democrats passed Obamacare, or try to do something bipartisan and reach out to the leaders on the other side of the aisle. Nothing seems to be getting off the ground with no promise of any effort uh, anytime soon, certainly not before 2018. And it's hard to imagine a path that gets them to victory on that issue before the 2018 elections next year. Obamacare continues to fail. Rates continue to go up. Forecasts continue to get bleak. Insurers continue to pull out of markets. And last, but certainly not least, and I never thought I would be saying this all in one sentence, but that uh, our, our friend, our colleague, our fellow physician, Tom Price, is no longer at Health and Human Services. And it is beyond the scope of my broadcast today to speculate on why that happened. There's certainly plenty of that out there that I do not intend to compete with or even try, except to say that it's a sad day indeed to acknowledge uh, his, his departure from that post. And so it becomes difficult to figure out how anything's going to get done inside the Beltway. And as if that's 
not enough. We have this depressive effect of, of what's going on even beyond politics and politicians themselves, just you know, in the way the world seems to be these days. We have, and again, I, I don't want to step too far out of the bounds of, of what the doctor's lounge is meant to talk about, which is healthcare issues, but part of medicine is psychology and psychiatry. And so part of our psychology right now is to look at the deplorable behavior of major figureheads on both sides of the political aisle. And you know who I'm talking about. One's a big Hollywood person uh, who uh, it was caught sort of violating the very tenets of uh, the Democratic Party and liberalism and a conservative on the other side of this issue who was caught uh, intending to violate or suggesting to violate some of the basic tenets of conservatism. And it's, it just adds to the level of disgust. Uh, and the level of despair that one cannot help but feel uh, because it, it, it seems I think we're kind of running out of heroes. And I don't know that this is an artifact of social media sort of bringing out truths that, that may have existed long before we acknowledge them. Um, but, you know, in an age where, you know, people get personal and ugly on comment threads and articles and major figureheads uh, get in, pardon my language, with pissing contests on Twitter – uh, it just all gets a little bit depressing. So I did manage to find, and this is the topic for today's show, I did manage to find one place to find a little bit of optimism actually inside the Beltway. This is a piece of legislation uh, that I am going to review uh, today for your consideration, and this comes from a, an odd part of the universe unless you are like me, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, an otolaryngologist in which – case you have been following this closely for several months, but a bill has been passed. Yes, a bill has indeed been passed by both houses of Congress, signed by the president that has become law. And I know that uh, in, in this day and age of gridlock and, and uh, political infighting, it's, uh, it, it's almost hard to accept that such a thing can even happen, but it has. And this is coming from the world of hearing aids. And you might not pay much attention to that. Uh, it did get covered by the na- major networks briefly. Um, but uh, a law has been passed which changes the nature of how hearing aids can be manufactured and sold and purchased. So before I tell you about the bill, I think I need to go over a little bit of groundwork to sort of explain to you what the landscape is like in buying and selling hearing aids and what the situation is with hearing loss. Hearing loss is a big problem. Uh, It's a very easy problem to ignore. Uh, It's not like blindness. It's not like a lot of other disabilities, but it is is a significant disability, no doubt about it. Uh, There are 30 million Americans in the United States with significant hearing loss. Of course, most of those are in advanced age groups, but not all. Um, Half of those between age 70 and 74 have hearing loss, and if you're above the age of 85, there's an 80% chance that you have a significant hearing loss. And you say, well, so what? Uh, Just turn the TV up, right? Just talk louder, right? Well, it's not quite that simple, and there are some very compelling, very alarming data that have come out in the last few years that pretty clearly establish that if you are in an older age group and you have significant hearing loss – and there are definitions of what exactly that is. It's a little too technical to go in here. I won't torture you with that. But if you have significant hearing loss, there are there is a statistically significant association with uh, an accelerated rate of cognitive decline, such that because 
decreased hearing taxes your brain's ability to keep up with what's going on around you. And eventually it's kind of a two-stage process if you listen to the researchers present this. The second step after the increased strain is that the brain simply chooses to disconnect and say the hearing is so bad I can no longer stay connected to language. I can no longer stay connected to human communication. Uh, I just am going to disconnect. And, and there is a, there's a significant body of data that shows that if you have significant hearing loss in advanced years, your risk of that is significantly higher. What we don't know yet is whether or not hearing aids can stop that. I think everyone intuitively and appropriately concludes that that's true, but it's going to be a couple of years before we have that data. But the point is we have a lot of people with hearing loss. We have 30 million Americans with hearing loss. They are all at risk in advanced age of cognitive decline. And in spite of that, only one out of five, 20%, uh, is able to acquire and use a hearing aid. So it is a significant problem. So where do we stand with hearing aids in the United States today? Well, if you want to buy something to stick in your ear, to try and hear better, you have two choices. One is the traditional hearing aid, like we've been talking about. This is an FDA-regulated, bona fide medical device. Uh, it requires approval by the FDA, and uh, at least as of the end of 2015, about two years ago, required either a medical approval by a physician, an examination assessment, yes, hearing aids are appropriate, doctor goes on paper saying that, and go get your hearing aid, or... As a patient, you have to sign or had to sign. It's no longer true. I had to sign a waiver that says, I understand I am waiving my right to a doctor evaluation. I understand that there are health risks in bypassing the doctor evaluation before I get my hearing aid. Then you have to go to an audiologist, have a formal hearing test called an audiogram, which actually has a lot of data in it. Uh, and then you get your hearing aid and, and move on. Those hearing aids are very expensive. The floor, the cheapest hearing aid that you can get in the hearing aid category is about $1,500 per ear or $3,000 for a pair. And almost everybody requires two, of course. And uh, and that's very that's very expensive. That's the reason why only 20% of people who need hearing aids have one is because the cost is prohibitive, which is the driving force behind this entire issue. Now, currently, there's another kind of thing you can stick in your ear to make sounds louder, and it's called a personal sound amplification product. can't say that fast. Personal sound amplification product. These are far cheaper. You can get them as low as $20 or $30 per ear, ranging up to maybe $350, $400 per ear. Uh, these never required any sort of doctor input. They don't require any audiologist input. They don't require a hearing test. You just buy these things and stick them in your ears, and they kind of make everything louder. And uh, and the ones in the low end of the price range, below $100 per ear, they're pretty much garbage. They've been reviewed by multiple groups, consumer reports included. Stick one of these in your ear and you actually might make your hearing worse because they're acting like an earplug and don't amplify enough to even cover the obstructive effect of having something in your ear. If you go up a little bit higher in price, $350, $400 per ear, you can get something that amplifies fairly well. But if you put them in the trenches of hearing function, which is to say listen to a conversation in a loud restaurant or a party, that these things are minimally useful, if at all. So that was the playing field as of the beginning of 2016, the beginning of last year. Then things began to happen, mainly because of the pressures to come up with a useful hearing assisting device meant to address 
people with impaired hearing, which personal sound amplification devices are not, but there was this pressure to solve this problem. So the National Academy of Sciences came up with a report in 2016 um, for improving the accessibility and affordability of uh, hearing health care with adults. And they made a series of recommendations, all of which were interesting, only four of which had any substance, four out of 12. And uh, they were as follows. Number one, to remove uh, the FDA regulation for a medical evaluation or, or waiver, meaning you don't have to see a doctor before you get a hearing aid or choose between seeing a doctor or sign a waiver. You don't have to do either of those anymore. And the Obama administration immediately implemented that almost as soon as the report was released. And as of December of last year, you no longer have to choose between seeing a doctor or signing a waiver before you get a hearing aid. Fine, as far as it goes. Uh, there were a couple of other things. Uh, and, and the, the report suggested that, a, that we implement a new FDA device category, and this is what the legislation that we're going to talk about does. Implement a new FDA device category that is better than a personal sound amplification product but not as expensive or elaborate as a hearing aid, and they're going to call that over-the-counter hearing aids or OTC hearing aids. Two other recommendations that were good before we hit the break. Uh, improve the compatibility and interoperability of hearing aid technologies, meaning that if you purchased a hearing aid of brand A, uh, that you can go to an audiologist that sells only brand B and C and get your brand A hearing aid adjusted. And then a, a implication for us to develop better models of hearing aid pricing and delivery. Uh, we'll continue this topic. We are at the break. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Right now, there are millions of Americans whose lives we could could be made so much better if they had access to low-cost hearing aids. You know, this is a place where we could loosen up outdated regulation and with a few consumer protections put in place, we could actually let the market work to help bring better products to people at lower costs. Dang, did I hear that right? 
That was that was Senator Warren talking. Maybe I need a hearing aid. I don't know. I if I correct me if I'm wrong. Did I just hear Senator Warren say we're going to roll back regulations and we're going to let the free market do what it's going to do? Did I actually hear that? Or maybe I need to go to work tomorrow and have uh, one of the audiologists in my practice test my hearing. I don't know. I, you know, it turns out that that's that's true. Um, it was actually Senator Warren and Senator Grassley of Iowa, right? One Democrat, one Republican that brought. This over-the-counter hearing aid act of 2017 to Congress, um, it passed uh, both houses of Congress over the summer, and in in August, uh, you know, Trump actually signed it. So there's another thing that makes me wonder if I'm not hallucinating: is a bill passes both houses of Congress and the president signs it, and by God, we've got a law, and and maybe one that actually has the potential to do some good. Who knows? So what does this law do? So let, remember, a little background from the last segment, right? We talked about there are two kinds of, of things that you can put in your ear to make your hearing better. One is a traditional FDA-approved hearing aid that requires an audiologist to see you and to have your hearing formally tested, and you get this test called an audiogram that extensively tests your hearing and the function of the ear, uh, and then you have the hearing aid fitted to you and customized based on the information in that audiogram. So that's the first type. The other type is the other extreme, which is the personal, I'm going to call it a personal sound amplification product, right? This is something you buy off the shelf, has no customization to you. You don't even have to have a hearing loss to buy one. You stick the thing in your ear and sounds should at least in theory get louder, although that's not always the case. What the what the legislation does is create a middle category between the two, between the super high end, super expensive four, five, six thousand dollar per pair hearing aid and the ultra cheap as low as fifty bucks a pair hearing aid, that there's a middle category that sort of covers that five hundred dollar per ear to fifteen hundred dollar per ear category, which right now that's a big hole in the product line that people can buy. So this law says we're going to instruct the FDA to create this third category, this middle-of-the-road category that will be called over-the-counter hearing aids. It will be regulated by the FDA. The the devices in this category will need to meet the same quality standards and safety standards and labeling standards as the high-end hearing aids. But we'll do a little less and presumably cost a little less. And the FDA has three years to do this work and get uh, folks to be able to, you know, manufacturers to create these these products. And remember, this was all based on the recommendations of uh, the National Academy of Sciences that came out with 12 recommendations. Uh, and with the passage of this act, two out of the four have been implemented, namely to remove the requirement that a physician see a patient in order for them to get a hearing aid or for a patient to sign a waiver acknowledging that they really should see a doc. And uh, and the second being that the FDA create this category. Uh, and so, you know, two down, two to go in terms of the meaningful – hate that word meaningful, and if you've listened to my show, you know why uh, – but meaningful recommendations that came out of that. So, um, you know, this is, again, only for folks who have mild to moderate hearing loss, and everyone acknowledges if you have severe hearing loss that that's not going to work. So, so here's the first question. Is Elizabeth Warren was, was selling this as deregulation? Now, do you agree with that or do you not? On the other hand, it is adding to the books, right? This is going to be more regs the FDA is going to write, but I think it's fairly clear, and not everybody agrees with this, but in my opinion, it's fairly clear that that at least from a functional standpoint, this deregulates because it allows hearing aid manufacturers and people who want to buy hearing aids to do something they couldn't do before, 
which is namely to purchase a hearing aid somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a side, which can be manufactured more cheaply than the super high-end hearing aids. So it should open the market up some. On the other hand, you are adding to regulation. So it's a very emotional issue, as these things often are. You're dealing with people's livelihoods and their incomes in an industry that's pretty big. So we've got groups that are against this regulation, uh, ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, which is probably one of the ones that uh, otolaryngology is closest to, uh, they're against it. Um, the American Consumer Institute is also against it. Uh, and their reason for being against it is, is there are some very, very appropriate um, misgivings, let's say, uh, objections um, with this law. The big one being is that hearing loss can be a harbinger or a symptom of a significant medical condition. You could have chronic infections in your ear. You could have a, uh, a, a benign growth in the middle ear called a cholesteatoma, which although it's not technically uh, a tumor, it can erode tissue like a tumor, it can erode bone like a tumor, and it can cause very serious complications if it's left unchecked for years on end. Uh, there's also something called an acoustic neuroma, which is also benign, but it is a tumor. It is a growth, and it grows on the hearing nerve between the inner ear and the brain. And yes, they're rare, but they happen, and you could have an acoustic neuroma if you have hearing loss. And you could significantly delay your evaluation by a physician and delay a very significant diagnosis. And when, when these two organizations raise the objections, they're absolutely right that these are significant issues that need to be handled. Um, there's also some of these cheap hearing aids. There's no internal protection against overstimulating the ear. And so some of these cheap uh, hearing aid devices can actually damage the ear the same way that, you know, earbuds and headphones damage the hearing of kids that turn up their iPods too loud, that the same thing can happen with these cheaper end, you know, hearing assist devices. On the other hand, there are, uh, folks like the Hearing Loss Association of America and the Consumer Technology Association who are very much in favor of this because of the free market competition and the price protection. Now, there's a there's a dark side to that as well is that a lot of these companies are like Bose and some of these folks that make, uh, you know, headphones already. And it's easy to appreciate that the technology that goes into wireless Bluetooth headphones bone conduction earphones like I just bought, uh, and these kind of things are all very similar to hearing aid technologies. And so it's not a huge leap to think that these folks couldn't build a hearing aid since they've been building devices for the ear for a great many years. Is that good or is it bad? Well, we don't know yet, but thanks to this legislation, I think we are going to find out. No question about it. So... You knew at some point that I was going to stop reporting facts and give you my opinion on this, and I I think it's reasonable for me to do because I'm an ear, nose, and throat doc, and I've been working with hearing-impaired patients for about 25 years in private practice. So I think I got enough experience to try to render some opinion that is somewhat useful at least. Uh, I think in the end this is going to be a good idea, and I think that the argument that giving – folks the ability to get a hearing aid for themselves is going to potentially delay a diagnosis. I said that's a legitimate uh, objection or a a legitimate concern, and it is. The problem is we already have this mechanism in many other aspects of medicine, right? If you extend that logic to pain medicine or a sleeping aid or 
you know, any number of over-the-counter things that you can buy, medicine for allergies, whatnot. I mean, all of these, all of the symptoms that you're trying to treat with over-the-counter medicines could be harbingers of bigger symptoms that may require medical attention and might require it urgently. But if you extend the logic to everything else you can get over-the-counter, well, you better not sell pain medicine. You better not sell Tylenol or Aleve because pain can be a sign of malignancy or something else. So better take that off the market. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. You know, if if you have a stuffy nose, well, you could have a tumor in your nose blocking your airway. You know, maybe we shouldn't sell allergy medicine. So, I mean, the idea that, I mean, selling over-the-counter hearing aids and, and worrying about the diagnoses you'll delay is kind of the same situation we have in other parts of medicine. So, uh, in the end, I think you have to acknowledge that purchasing an over-the-counter hearing aid without the intervention of, a, of, a, of an appropriate physician or audiologist does raise the risk of a delayed diagnosis. But in our system, I think we have to be willing to accept that just the way we accept it in other parts of medicine with pain medicine and allergy medicine and sleeping aids and everything else that you can buy over the counter. I think that makes sense. And I think the benefits probably outweigh the potential risk. But it does put a sort of public awareness campaign obligation on ear, nose, and throat docs and audiologists to be sure that we do our part to make the public aware that if you have a hearing loss or you feel like you have a hearing loss, because a lot of people come in the office and think they have a hearing loss and have normal hearing tests, uh, that we need to be sure that we, number one, make the public aware, and number two, we then have to respond to pressure to make it easier for people to obtain hearing tests. Maybe we screen in the mall or we, you know, we, we do other things to bring you know, hearing testing you know, closer to the public and more accessible and less costly, which puts the onus on us. Um, you know, second is we need to do something. I mean, there's no question. I see this in my practice every single day where we test somebody for hearing and they have a significant hearing loss and we talk to them about hearing aids and they walk away because they can't afford them. And that's bad. I mean, when we talked earlier about the data about, you know, uh, uh, cognitive decline, onset of dementia because of hearing loss and the adverse effects it has on the aging brain, that's an issue. And now we're, we're sort of raising that risk because of hearing loss. I think finally it'll put the burden it'll put the burden on us and and in my practice we're going to respond to that challenge. We're already making big plans for revolutionizing how we sell hearing aids in our practice because of this law and I think it's going to be a good thing. You know, will will there be less profit per hearing aid? Absolutely, but we can sell to so many more people and help so many more people that I think in the end this ends up being a good thing and I think it's going to be a good thing in terms of education as well because Right now, people look at the $3,000 or $2,000 per ear hearing aids, and they don't understand why it costs so much to build a hearing aid. Well, if we introduce cheaper hearing aids to the market and you see what you don't get for what you don't pay, you'll understand why the expensive hearing aids are expensive. Or put another way, you don't understand why a Mercedes or a BMW or a Lexus is such a nice car unless you see it next to the Chevrolet that it's parked next to, and then you can compare the two and say, oh, I get it. You know, the Lexus has a bigger engine, it's quieter, it's smoother, it's nicer inside, it's prettier. And I didn't understand that till I looked at the low-end car, the Chevy or the Dodge or whatever, and said, oh, I understand now why the other one is so expensive. So I think there will be a lot of education. 
and there will be a lot of understanding of what you get for $2,500 per side, that you get better quality, better performance. We can treat problems like tinnitus, like ringing uh, with an expensive hearing aid, and that that's a big problem for folks, and, and the, the cheaper hearing aids aren't going to be able to face that, at least not in the beginning, but maybe we'll get some trickle-down technology later. So I think in the end, uh, I personally look forward to this challenge. Our practice looks forward to this challenge. We intend to respond to this aggressively. Um, we intend to be able to serve the public better. We look forward to that. Uh, and I think in the end, this is going to be a good thing if we do it right and if the FDA gets the details right as they write these regulations. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Karuchek, your host. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. If we give the power back to you, back to the state, that totally changes. And Washington, which is hardwired for them to do well, now has to come to you and get your approval for these things. I'm about you having that power. Well, I'm glad. All right. So there is a little uh, uh, soundbite from uh, from Senator Cassidy talking about the uh, now uh, dead in the water uh, Graham Cassidy bill, Republicans' last uh, effort in the foreseeable, reasonable future to uh, fulfill their promise to the American people to uh, at, at least at some level repeal slash replace slash do something sort of kind of about Obamacare. 
Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Mike Karuchak, your host. Uh, we are uh, proud to still be broadcasting on America's Web Radio on Thursday mornings, and we are delighted to also be available to you on podcast, which, quite frankly, is how many of you uh, uh, download our program at your convenience. We thank you for your continued support. We are sponsored by uh, America's Web Radio, of course, and the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are, of course, a 501c3. We are dedicated to free market solutions for the problems facing our healthcare system today. Um, occasionally in the career of a physician, uh, and it hasn't happened to me since I've been out of training, but occasionally uh, we are called on to perform the grim task of pronouncing a patient dead. Uh, that involves obviously a trip to the bedside and an assessment and listening to the heart and lungs and all of these sort of dutiful things and, and rituals that we do before uh, completing that grim task. Uh, I think now at a, at, a, at a social level, at a political level, I think we're pretty close to that same uh, situation uh, regarding uh, our, our attempts, uh, the, the attempts of the Congress of the United States and uh, the federal government to uh, repeal Obamacare. So uh, we're going to talk about that today with our very special guest, Twyla Brace, who is the uh, engineer, uh, the genius behind a movement called the Wedge of Healthcare Freedom. And we are going to talk about the Graham-Cassidy bill a bit, but uh, I want uh, Twyla to, to give us uh, an update on some of the work that she is doing uh, here at the top of the hour. So Twyla, thanks again so much. I know you are so busy these days, so I appreciate you uh, giving uh, some time to, uh, to chat today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Happy to uh, talk about all of these moving pieces and parts. Um, yes, we started the we launched the Wedge of Health Freedom in uh, the summer of 2016, and have been adding practices ever since, and now have more than 200 practices all around the country that are on. And we know that there's so many more that could be added, but all of these practices are those that are third-party payer-free. So they uh, they don't deal with insurance and they don't deal with the government, but they're welcome to see any patients, whether they're uninsured, uh, insured, or, you know, in some sort of a public health program or a government program. Um, the whole purpose of the wedge was to identify for the American people this free trade zone that is happening uh, in this country, but most Americans are unaware of, and that is that the patient and the doctor are working together in a direct relationship without any uh, in interference from the government or interference from a health plan or insurer, and uh, the costs are typically uh, less because there is no interference, and that means that there's also no third-party payer overhead and bureaucracy and reporting and mandates and all of these things that really don't add to the care of the patient but do add to the cost of care because this is what doctors all over the country and nurses and their staff are all doing when they deal with third-party payers. Absolutely. So the wedge, So the wedge is really meant to draw the public's attention to the fact that it can be done uh, cheaper, it can be done more personally, and it can be done in complete confidence that their medical records aren't going to go anywhere when they use this kind of practice. And this is a way back to affordability for all of healthcare in the country. 
So uh, if you join the wedge, does that mean, Twyla, that you have to get out of third-party activity completely or just sort of be open to accepting those patients and sort of build it gradually, or does it require a complete sort of switchover? Well, we drew a bright line because we know where we want the the entire uh, – healthcare system to go, which is back to freedom. And because uh, practices who have insurance or government, any piece of insurance or government, uh, often are required under the contract or under, you know, Medicare, Medicaid to share information, not only on the Medicare, Medicaid patients, uh, but also on all the rest of their patients, just like, you know, MACRA. And so we um, we drew a bright line and said these uh, these practices have to be really truly third party payer free, not just part of their practice, but all of their practice, because this is where we believe that the country has to go to get back to freedom. So it makes it a little slower for us to grow because we know that there are lots of practices that are you know putting their a toe in the water of direct pay or they've got, you know, a piece of it here or they'll, they'll take, you know, cash over there or whatever. But we know where we want to go. And if you look at jointhewedge.com and and just look at our, our one pager in the, in the facts, the FAQ, just look at that overview and you can see the diagrams where we show that we envision a completely different future, which is not different from what we've had in the history of this country. It is what we had, though, before managed care and before Medicare, and that was uh, three direct contractual relationships. So on that flyer, on that one pager, you'll see a triangle with the payer on the top and the patient in the bo- and the doctor on the other two bottom points, and that's where we're at today with this triangle where everything goes sort of ring around the rosy and nobody knows what's going to happen, but the payer is always in control. We want to disassemble, use the wedge to disassemble those three lines of the triangle into three contractual relationships just like it used to be. Uh, be in those contractual relationships, which are patient to doctor, patient to hospital, patient to insurer, the insurer is actually an indemnity policy, and that indemnity policy pays the patient who then pays the doctor in the hospital. And, um, oh, I don't know, maybe several months ago I was talking to somebody who's nearly in his 80s, and when he heard about the wedge and he was listening to the presentation, he said, well, that's how it used to be. I can't see that. <laughs> he said in, in the early 70s, he said he had some heart condition and he needed heart surgery. So his indemnity policy paid him, sent him a check, for $68,000, and he used that to pay his doctor in his hospital. Nobody interfered. Nobody told him which doctor he could use or, you know, which pain medication or, you know, which procedure or which implant or, you know, whatever he had done. There was nobody else except him and the doctor making these decisions. And, of course, there was a set amount that the insurance company, you know, had for this kind of a, you know, procedure, and they just sent it to him, and then he paid, and it was simple. That's what he said. It was so simple. Well, exactly, and that's that does so many good things, right? And, and you, you and I both know this. That first off, the, the money is the patient's money, right? Uh, and so they are driven to exert the same downward pressure on prices that people do, customers do in every single other segment of the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's why a new Ford doesn't cost a hundred thousand dollars, or a flat screen TV doesn't cost ten thousand dollars because at those prices they wouldn't sell. 
uh, in healthcare, as you already know, that with with the prices hidden in the triangle, um, you know those prices are are free to go up, and patients can shop. So it it, it makes perfect sense, and the providers win because, the, as you just said, the overhead goes down because we don't have to hire an army of claims experts to you know clean these claims, pursue these claims, appeal these claims. Um, so yes, it's a it's a thing of beauty that makes perfect sense, Twyla. Yes, it's, you know, it's the way we do everything else, and it's so crystal clear, and you can make value decisions, because the fact of the matter is, there are things that are really expensive in uh, in medical care that I think might come down if the patient was paying, because the doctor would have to look at the patient, and the patient would look at the doctor, and they'd talk about the price, and then the company, whoever that company is, it's got, you know, a sky-high price on the drug or the procedure, you know, the... Um, device or whatever, right, they'll start realizing, whoa, <laughs> I'm not selling as many of these as I used to be. Why right. is this? Because the patient is deciding, you know what, I I can deal, I can find another way to deal with this. Or, you know, I, I'm going to try a more natural way, or I'm going to wait for two years, right? I could have it now, but let me wait until it gets worse or, you know, see what happens. And then I think there will be some patients, too, particularly really um, a lot of older patients, because we see freedom for Medicare. We're working to get freedom for Medicare patients, uh, because rationing is coming in droves as a result of Medicare's unfunded liability, but also the Affordable Care Act and all the rationing strategies that are in that law. Um, But people who are, you know, maybe towards more towards the end of their years, might decide that they aren't going to pay that. They're going to, you know, leave something for their grandchildren. You know, I just think that there are there are different ways that people will start to think when it is their own money. We don't know how they're going to think, and we don't want to tell them how to think. But when it's their own money, they will make different decisions. Absolutely. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. It's the way to drive costs down. And now we've kind of got uh, with this... This latest legislative failure, I, you know, I think we almost have kind of a push-pull thing going on here because I think, you know, we have seen in the last nine months uh, since the new administration and new Congress has has come to, to power uh, is that uh, even with, you know, the, the White House and both houses – that, that government is completely ineffectual in dealing with this. Government's not going to save us. So if they're not going to save us, who's going to do it? Well, it's going to be people like you coming up with ideas like this um, that operate completely outside, that, that don't require legislation that forces people to do it. We can show the value and have people make their own choices to come and do it. Right. And and uh, just so your uh, listeners know, in the wedge, you know, it's for people who are uninsured, insured, and government programs, it, it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, we really want people to end up with lifelong policies. We have ideas for, for instance, um, with the Medicare population, right? When you turn 65, whatever insurance you have, if you get to keep it, if they don't cancel it on you, but... If you get to keep it, it becomes secondary. Medicare becomes primary, and everything has to go through Medicare. Well, there are people who would really like that not to be the case. They would like their better insurance to be their primary, and and Medicare in the background or not have Medicare at all. But um, when the Clintons were in, in 1993, they did by an executive instruction, not an executive order, just an instruction, just you know, one day it appeared in the Social Security Operations, no, Procedure Operations yeah, Manual. 30, 30 seconds. Go ahead. 
Okay, uh, that you uh, you had to be in Medicare Part A or you'd lose your Social Security. It's not a law. It's not a rule. And so this is the sort of thing where the Trump administration can take this out, and that's what we're trying to do, give them back their freedom. Makes perfect sense. Uh, we've reached the end of segment one. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Twyla Brace. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek, your host this week. Uh, I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz here in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, I am pleased and delighted to have as my special guest today, Twyla Braze, the engineer, the brilliance behind the wedge of healthcare freedom. And as we finished up the last segment, we were just kind of finishing up some of the stuff uh, that, that uh, Twyla is busy with currently. Uh, and you've got some neat things coming up, Twyla. Yes, we have. Um, we are part of the nuts and bolts DPC. We're helping to sponsor that, and down in uh, Orlando. And so the Wedge of Health Freedom will be on display there. And um, Matt, who's one of our staff, will be down there. Uh, you know, providing question or answers to people's questions, and you know, providing some of our materials, including our one pager, which explains that triangle that I was talking about earlier. And the, into three straight lines, our, our vision for the future of health freedom in this country. Uh, and then on October 24th, we have our special uh, annual uh, dinner with a fundraising event. It's a fundraising event, and we have Pete Hegseth, who's just a... Um, he, he loves freedom. He's a real advocate for freedom. He is a on Fox News, a co-host of Fox and Friends, and he will be here talking about um, in the arena. It's a book that he wrote, and it really calls people 
to stay in the arena and it's you know it's a perfect time for us to have him because so many people are upset with congress and that congress can't seem to repeal or isn't interested in being repeal in repealing the law and uh they just want to throw up their hands well if you if you want to have freedom in this country you cannot afford to throw up your hands if you want to have a patient doctor relationship if you want to you know not have somebody else tell you when you can and cannot have health care you cannot throw up your hands and so uh, our organization is in the arena we have strategies to build escape hatches back to freedom which don't depend on congress and so this is a fundraising event for us to keep us uh moving it uh, in good stead into 2018 and able to grow the wedge and and really build these escape hatches no matter what congress does so that's october 24th uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with Pete Hagseth, and I'll be speaking too. Outstanding. Uh, tell everybody what your website is so people want to go and see that one-page summary. Sure. The um, Well, our website uh, is cchfreedom.org, cchfreedom.org, and they can just click on the box that says The Wedge, or they can go directly to jointhewedge.com, which takes you to the one-page summary of the wedge with the triangle. Outstanding. So really neat stuff going on there, and uh, we appreciate you sharing that, uh, Twyla, because that's all really important stuff. And, and Twyla also has, if you don't know already, you do a, a Healthcare Freedom Minute. Um, I don't know if it's weekly or daily, or, or uh, just give everybody a little filler on that. Sure. It's the Health Freedom Minute. Uh, it's kind of funny. It's done um, every day in more than 800 radio stations around the country in 47 states. Oh, you've grown I, that since the last time. Last time yeah. I heard that number, it was a lot less than that. So yes, you're, you're cooking. So, yes, we are growing it. And it's so funny because somebody has said to me, well, is there that much to talk about in healthcare? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh I, could, uh, you know, I could talk a minute. Many, 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 many minutes. It's just that most people can't handle more than one minute at a time or a few minutes. So you have this program, which is once a week, right? And it's to, you know, focus on doctors who are involved. But we try to parse out and educate the American public on things they don't even know are happening and really connect the dots in their minds as to, you know, even things like I'm just doing a minute uh, for next week where I'm going to tell them how health plans are not insurance. Health plans our our, uh, socialized medicine under corporate cover and so you know this kind of thing to make the american public realize that they that uh, insurance has gone away uh the affordable care act has taken it away medicare helped the process towards getting it taken away but until they start to grasp the realities they won't take action if they think there's still a market if they they think there's still insurance then they'll think you know well we still have freedom in this country and so you know that's part of what i do with the minute is try to bring truth in a really digestible fashion every day to their radios <laughs> i suspect your problem is not finding things to fill one minute but to manage <laughs> to fit it into one minute that's right because it's just a few seconds that you know you don't have you don't have very long uh, for your listeners if they want to hear them they are actually on our homepage, cchfreedom.org it's right under the slider that has all the uh, pictures going by and they can look all the way back into the archives and uh, they can look listen to it as though we're a one-minute podcast or they can read it so we have both 
Perfect. Um, now, there's one other thing before we move on to the to the Graham Cassidy bill. Uh, there was something that you touched on in the first segment, uh, talking about practices and join the wedge. Because I know that that one of your your big messages, and it's a great message, uh, is about privacy and electronic medical records, and and the fact it, correctly you state that you know once you put these things online, there's really no way to protect the privacy of those records, whether it's you know government. Uh, allowed access or hackers or whatnot. Uh, what, what's for a practice to join the wedge? What do they need to do in terms of of looking at that privacy issue in their own record keeping? So it means that the individual has consent over where the data goes. It means that there's no reporting to the government. There's no hooking up to the state health information exchange. Um, you know, the it's really just kept. Um, private unless the individual says they want it shared somewhere. So if, you know, if uh, laboratories or, you know, x-rays, that sort of thing, if that requires you to hook up to the grid, then that wouldn't work well. If it is a, you know, a dedicated line, right, that's a whole different thing. But, um, but when it comes to putting it all on the grid, so the federal government is creating a national health information exchange. Mm-hmm. They call it the e-health exchange. And when you look at their pictures of it, it's all run through the Internet and nodes that communicate with each other through the Internet. But uh, that is a specific decision to get onto that kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, communication system. And so it really has to do with, you know, keeping off the grid. You can have an electronic health record. It's just, you know, not hooking it up to the grid. Gotcha. Understood. Okay. So let's move on to the official topic of the day, which is to sort of look at the, you know, now, uh, you know, legislatively deceased Graham Cassidy uh, uh, bill. Uh, I guess the big message of this bill and you, you heard uh, Senator Cassidy at the, at the top of the hour sort of uh, you know, sell this idea was that, that it was going to radically change the structure of how federal money for Medicaid passes to the states uh, and, and that this was going to you know, take power out of Washington and give it back to the states and sort of do a lot of allegedly neat things. Um, what's your take on the whole situation? So we put, we didn't put it on our website, but we put it on our uh, Facebook page, uh, 10 Reasons Why Graham Cassidy is Still Federal Control and Not State Control. Uh, There is $1.2 trillion that would be given to the states to essentially uh, come up with new ways of of, uh, doing what they do in their state, and it it was called the Market-Based Healthcare Grant Program, but it still had tons of strings attached. Uh, it would be uh, a six-year grant. It would go from $190 billion in 2026 to zero in 2027. And do you know what that would cause? <laughs> that would cause the states to go right to the federal government and say, hey, we used all that money that you gave us to create these programs. You can't drop us now. And so this is, you know, this a, a completely uh, new federal funding stream of billions, trillions of dollars far into the future. This money would be used, for instance, to create programs that would essentially put the individual market into a new government program. It would create a new government program for the middle and upper class. Anyone who buys their own health insurance uh, could be put into a reinsurance program where 
the taxpayers fund a majority of their costs, and the health plans are basically just running it. Um, and um, and it would have kept all the exchanges in place and actually required, uh, uh, you know, for implementation, required those exchanges to stay in place. And it would, they, you know, they offered a um, catastrophic policy, so they said, but it would be an Obamacare catastrophic policy. So you'd have to buy it from a health plan, not from an indemnity company, which is what catastrophic insurance truly comes from, uh, which the Affordable Care Act prohibited. And um, so it would be an Obamacare-type policy in a single pool, single risk pool. So I don't know, you know, if your listeners understand that, but it means that everybody who buys their own policy would be in the same pool with everyone with uninsurable pre-existing conditions. This is what this is what Obamacare requires. This is why everybody who's buying their own health insurance have found it to become unaffordable and lots of them have just dropped it, right? Because sure. of this single risk pool requirement and this bill would keep the single risk pool requirement. So as much as they like to talk about, oh, well, you'll have now the option for a catastrophic policy. Well, it really wouldn't be catastrophic because a catastrophic policy is where all the people who are in that policy do not have uninsurable conditions. They're all hoping they don't get one of those catastrophic conditions. They don't have one. They're hoping that they don't get one. It's true insurance. It's, you know, you're insuring against the financial disaster of a catastrophic condition. You don't have it yet. It's like, you know, home insurance. Your house is not yet burning down. Right. Right. It's a situation (laughs) where claims are both large and rare, and that, not, right. you know, like like I said, like car and, and homeowners insurance and that kind of thing. So, uh, so if I understand correctly, then Twyla, this, although on the surface this appears to only affect Medicaid, it actually affects far more than that. It, it might- oh, it's yes, it's far, yes, it's far more. They actually had three new uh, funding programs. There was like twenty five billion for the health plans, uh, and there was this one point. Two trillion dollar new program, and then there was eleven billion for something. I'm just not just not coming to me what that eleven billion was for. Uh, but no, it was far. It was far reaching. And you know, you love the idea of them sending it back to the states if they really did. But all they have to do to send it back to the states is do a real repeal. And there are real repeal bills. There's a uh, uh, HR seventeen eighteen. It's a two page bill. And it simply says the, the Patient and Protection and Affordable Care Act and it's and the other act that was amended to it a week later are repealed. End of statement. 2,700 pages of law gone, all the 20,000-plus pages of regulations gone. That's a real repeal. Every, they, they don't even repeal the individual mandate or the employer mandate. They merely zero the, down the penalties. So well, that that's a requirement of reconciliation, is it not? I mean, that- That's right. But see, that is why they should put a real repeal. I don't care if it takes 60 votes. Put a real repeal up. They've never done it. They no. have never done it. And you have no idea. I, I told this, uh, I was talking to a staffer in, in leadership uh, one of the last times I was in D.C., and I and he said, well, you know, we've done all these repeals. And I said, well, you know, not really. No. And I said, and you haven't done one with Trump That's as right. president. That's right, and all those other ones were just kind of playing around. Wow. Oh, okay. We've uh, we've reached the end of the segment. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.